Well, what a joy it's been to be here for this short period of time, and thank you for being so faithful to stay all the way to the end. You are an example of the perseverance of the saints, and um, your endurance has shown you to be one of the elect. So um, I want to thank Steve Swartz uh, for the invitation to be here, as well as the elders of Grace Bible Church uh, who have been so warm and hospitable. Uh, to me during my time here. I'm going to have the joy of having dinner with the elders and with Steve and whoever else tonight. I'm looking forward to that fellowship, and I'm looking forward to being able to preach tomorrow uh, at Grace Bible Church. And so thank you so much for your warm uh, reception and for this opportunity to uh, bring the Word of God to you. Uh, We began this conference by considering the glory of the Trinity in salvation, as Steve just said. And so now in this final session, we want to bookend uh, the entire conference by now looking at the glory of the Trinity in sanctification. So please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to begin reading uh, in verse 13. My eye is on verse 18, but I want to begin reading in verse 13. And during the course of this message, Lord willing, we shall survey much of the rest of the book of Ephesians. But I want to begin in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 13. This will be our launching point for our message now in this final session The Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church at Ephesus, by extension, is writing to every church in every place in every generation. He is writing to us as well. And beginning in verse 13, or excuse me, I'm going to start in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formally, and that refers to before their conversion, you the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time, referring to their unconverted state, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself, referring to Christ, He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to to those who were near. Now, here's verse 18. For through Him, referring to Christ, we have, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Do you see that in verse 18? The Trinitarian focus through Christ in the Spirit to the Father. One of the distinguishing marks of the book of Ephesians is its continual emphasis upon the Trinity. I believe it can be argued that the book of Ephesians is the single most Trinitarian book in the Bible. Verse for verse, chapter for chapter, there is more of an emphasis upon the three persons of the Godhead than in any other book of sacred Scripture. We noted that reality last night as the book of Ephesians began Paul usually begins by commending the church that he is writing to, thanking God for them, and offering some personal comments, but not in the book of Ephesians. It starts in a totally different manner. Rather than focusing horizontally on the church that he is writing to, 
Paul actually begins this letter with a vertical focus looking straight up into the heights of heaven and begins with a Trinitarian focus from the very outset of the book of Ephesians. And that's what we looked at last night, that we've been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and regenerated by the Spirit, that salvation is Trinitarian. In order to have the fullest understanding of what salvation truly is, we must see it from the perspective of the three persons of the Godhead. But as the book of Ephesians continues to unfold, Paul does not walk away from this Trinitarian focus, but as we would expect, he continues with a myoptic vision of the Trinity. And so the Trinity becomes the chief manner by which he will address the Ephesians concerning their Christian life. He wants them to have an under, a Trinitarian understanding not only of their salvation, but also of their Christian life. Now, seeing the triune God is really the ultimate lens through which we see our pursuit of holiness. Understanding the work of the Trinity in our Christian lives becomes really the supreme template that becomes the overlay of understanding what is it to live the Christian life. It would be far too one-dimensional if we thought of our Christian life as being merely being filled with the Spirit. It would be far too one-dimensional to think of our Christian life as merely following Christ. It would be too one-dimensional for us to think of the Christian life exclusively as knowing God the Father. All three of those are true. But in order for us to have the widest angle lens, to have the most comprehensive an uh, awareness of what it is to grow as a Christian, we must understand the role of all three persons in our pursuit of holiness. Now, no one book in the Bible is able to encompass the whole, and no one book in the Bible is able to say all that can be said on this subject, and certainly no one sermon is able to survey the entire landscape. But as we will look during our time today in the book of Ephesians, there are seven aspects of the Christian life that I want you to note that is contained in this book, and all seven of these are found in the book of Ephesians. All seven of these reveal a Trinitarian aspect concerning a different portion of the Christian life. So, I want us to begin now with this text that I just read in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. And the first main heading that I want you to see in our Christian life as it pertains to the Trinity is our spiritual access. Our spiritual access. Beginning in verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly the Gentiles in the flesh, that means those who were born outside the nation of Israel who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Stop right there. What he is saying is just because a Jew is circumcised physically does not mean that they have had a spiritual circumcision. No one goes to heaven simply because you have a physical circumcision. There must be a spiritual circumcision, which is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to cut the heart and pierce the heart in a deep work of regenerating grace. Spiritual circumcision really becomes a synonymous expression for the new birth. And so, Paul is acknowledging that not everyone who is so-called circumcision is in reality one who has experienced a, a true circumcision of the heart. 
And let me just say, in order for anyone here today to go to heaven, you must be one upon whom God has performed open-heart surgery, that there has been the penetrating knife of the Word of God handled by the Spirit of God to pierce deeply into your heart and for your heart to be thrown open and for God to do a deep work of grace by which He removes your heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, and puts the life of God within your human soul. That is the true circumcision. Now, in verse 12, remember that you were at that time, referring before they were converted and regenerated. Uh, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. And would you please note, no one has always known God, and no one has always been a Christian. There, there must come a time in everyone's life where the Spirit of God brings about a spiritual circumcision in the heart. But before that occurs, one is separated from God. There is a a wide chasm that separates Christ from everyone who was born into this world. That's why you have to be born again. So he says, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were on the outside looking in and strangers to the covenants of promise. You, you had not experienced the reality of, of Christ contained and taught in these covenants, having no hope and without God in the world. Everyone born into this world is separated from Christ and without God in the world. Now, verse 13, but now, referring to now that they are in Christ Jesus you who were formerly far off. And let me just remind you, you were far off, and I was far off before we were born again. We who were far off. And, and even if you grew up in church, you were far off from Christ and far off from God until God did His penetrating work of spiritual circumcision in the heart. He says, you have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And when he says brought near, he means brought near to God, brought into a, a personal saving relationship with God. Verse 14, for he himself, referring to Christ, and the word himself is important, meaning Christ alone. We just heard that son. Christ and no one else. Christ all by himself. Christ alone, solas Christos, is our peace. He is our peace with God, and He is our peace with other brothers and sisters in Christ, who made both groups, referring Jew and Gentile, those who have been physically circumcised and those who have not been physically circumcised, He has made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And this barrier were the mosaic requirements under the ceremonial law by which there was literally a wall in the temple that separated Jew from Gentile. There was a, a segment, segmenting. There was a, a discrimination, if you will, under the mosaic law. And Gentiles were in the outer courts, Jews were on the inside, and Christ by His death has abolished this wall that separates Jew and Gentile in the kingdom of God. And how has He done it? Verse 15, by abolishing in His flesh, that is a reference to His death upon the cross, the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself nothing was exported. It was all done in Christ. He might make the two, Jews and Gentiles, 
into one new man, thus establishing peace. And the peace here is between Jew and Gentile, no longer an enmity and jealousy stirred up by the law that separated Jew and Gentile when they came to the temple, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, verse 16, and might reconcile them. Now, the word reconcile means there are two parties at a disagreement. There are two parties that are irreconcilable. There are two parties that are in conflict with one another. There are two parties who are uh, in a state of hostility toward one another. And these two parties, man has been at enmity with God. There has been cosmic rebellion by man against Almighty God. But I'm going to tell you what's worse. God has been at war with sinners as well. There's more to the story than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm says. And God has vengeance every day and wrath. And Jesus Christ... Our mediator has stood in the middle and brought about reconciliation. He has taken sinful, excuse me, sinful man in one hand, holy God in the other, and has brought the two together through the blood of His cross. And in so doing, He has also removed the barrier between Jew and Gentile. There are no longer those distinctions anymore and has brought the two together to form one new body of Christ, which is the church. So this is actually a twofold reconciliation. There is a horizontal reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, and there is a vertical reconciliation between God and sinners. And Christ, by His death, by His one death, has performed and accomplished and achieved this double reconciliation, horizontally, vertically, between men and between men and God. So verse verse 17 is a quotation from Isaiah 57, verse 19, and He, referring to Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. And Christ, the great preacher of the Word of God, the greatest expositor who ever walked this earth, as He came, He preached peace between God and men, between heaven and earth, and He established peace between Jew and Gentile. So now verse 18. All of that is to say this, for through Him, the Him refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, the reconciler, the one who has established peace, through Him we both, Jew and Gentile, have our access. Please note, There's not one way for the Jew to have access and a different way for a Gentile to have access. There is only one way to the Father. There is only one way of access to God the Father, and it is through Jesus Christ. Here is the exclusivity of salvation in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, we both have our access, please note, in one spirit to the Father. Now, this is a very important Trinitarian distinction, that in our conversion, as we began the Christian life, we came to the Father through the Son in or by the Holy Spirit. We, in essence, talked about that last night. But this now gives a more, a a broader understanding and interpretation 
of our conversion. This is how you entered into the kingdom and how I have entered into the kingdom. We now have come to the Father. And when he says to the Father, he means that we have come to the experiential knowledge of the Father. We no longer simply know about God. We actually know God in an intimate, personal love relationship. And as we have come quorum Deo into the face of God, into the very presence of God now, into His inner circle where we know Him, our way of access is exclusively through the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is accomplished through Christ by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who has convicted us of our need to know God. It is the Holy Spirit who has effectually called us into relationship with God the Father. It is the Holy Spirit who has drawn us into relationship with the Father. It is the Holy Spirit who has birthed us into this relationship with the Father. It is the Holy Spirit who has opened our eyes to see the truth, opened our ears to hear the truth. It is the Holy Spirit who has granted repentance, and it is the Holy Spirit who has given to us the gift of saving faith. There is no way we could know God through Christ except by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And here we see how all three persons of the Godhead work inseparably together. But it's not simply in our conversion. This is now our ongoing experience, moment by moment, day by day, throughout the entirety of our Christian life. As we pray, we pray to the Father. We come boldly through the Son, and we are led and guided and directed in our prayers and even energized with enlarged faith and fervent passion by the Holy Spirit. This access that began at the moment of our conversion is now our ongoing experience as we live our Christian life. To whom do we pray? Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 9, you are to pray, we are to pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus did not say, pray to me. Jesus said, pray to the Father, and the only way you can come to the Father is by praying in my name, and it is the Spirit of God who ushers us experientially into the very throne room of God in heaven. This is our spiritual access. It is a Trinitarian understanding by which we have come to know God. So this is where this is what Paul wants us to understand. And time does not really permit me to trace this out further, but you can study verses 19 through 22 when you come home, and you'll note he continues with the Trinitarian focus. In verse 19, he speaks of God's household, that is the household of God the Father. In verse 20, he speaks of Christ Jesus, who is the cornerstone of the temple of God. And in verse 22, he speaks of the dwelling place of God the Father as the church is being built by the Spirit. Do you see that in verses 19 through 22? I will leave that for you to study with your study Bible as you get home. But there are three different metaphors that that Paul uses here 
of a household, of a temple, and of a family, and all three have a Trinitarian focus. That is, Christ is building His church. Christ is the cornerstone. The church is the dwelling place for God the Father, and it is being put together by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, second, this could end up being a series. Now, second, and I'll I'll move more quickly. Second, I want you to note not only spiritual access, but in chapter 3 now, spiritual truth. In order to live the Christian life, right, we need truth. The word truth means reality. And the truth is found in the Word of God. Your Christian life can only move forward as you have the spiritual truth of the Word of God in your life. And so Paul makes reference to this through a Trinitarian lens in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, stop right there. In reality, he's he's the prisoner of Rome. He's chained to Roman prisoners, but Paul doesn't see himself as the prisoner of Rome. He sees himself held by the chains of divine providence. He is the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He is held by the chains of the invisible hand of Christ who has led and directed his steps to this very prison house. So he says, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. Now, this is a reference to God the Father. And when he says the stewardship of God's grace, he is referring to the message of grace in the gospel that has been entrusted to Paul. And so he goes on to define what this message of grace is, but it has come from the Father. Understand this, all truth has come down from above. It it has come from outside of this world. Truth has not come, spiritual truth, redemptive truth, has not come from the culture. It has not come from society. It has not come from any denomination. It has not come from any church. It has not come from any pastor. It has not come from any group of elders. It has come from outside of this world. It has come down from the throne of God. All truth, spiritual, redemptive truth, has come from God the Father. Now, he says in verse 3 that the content of this truth concerns the mystery. And in verse 4, he says this mystery is the mystery of Christ. It is the mystery about Christ. So, it has come from the Father. It is about Christ. And we know that this mystery of Christ, when we also compare this with Colossians, is twofold. It is the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory, and it is the mystery of Jew and Gentile being made one in Christ. So we are one in Christ, and Christ is in us. Now, this is the mystery And this was revealed, verse 5 says, in or by the Holy Spirit. It was revealed in verse 5 to His holy apostles and prophets in or by the Spirit. Do you see how spiritual truth works here as Paul uh, unfolds his case to the church at Ephesus? That the spiritual truth that they need in the gospel And the spiritual truth they need to live their Christian life has come from the Father. It is about the Lord Jesus, and it is come by the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God who has taken the truth of the Father and revealed it to the apostles and to the prophets. Even in our understanding of the truth, receiving the truth, this too is Trinitarian. And all three persons of the Godhead are working together to give us divine revelation. 
Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. This truth has come from the Father by the Spirit about the Son. And in Psalm 119, verse 9, it says, how shall a young man keep his way pure? How shall a young woman keep her way pure? How shall an old man keep his way pure? How shall an old woman keep her way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Verse 11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Our Christian life will never grow beyond, will never grow one inch beyond our intake of the written Word of God. Not a one of us will live up to all of the knowledge that we have in the written Word of God, but will not put one little toe across the line of what we know of the Word of God in our spiritual growth. So, Paul is emphasizing here to the Ephesians that as they live their Christian life and are so dependent upon the truth, truth is Trinitarian. From the Father, by the Spirit, about the Son. Third, there is spiritual power for the Christian life that is Trinitarian. And in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, For this reason I I bow my knees before the Father. And here again, he underscores that our prayers are not going to the Spirit, they're not going to the Son. Our prayers are going to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And he talks now about the power that we need to live the Christian life. And let me just say this on the front end. Living the Christian life is not hard, it's impossible. There's only been one who has lived it perfectly, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way that you and I can live the Christian life is not in our own energy or in our own strength, but only and exclusively by the power of God in our lives. And it is when we are weak and recognize our weakness and rely upon Him that we are actually made strong. So in verse 16 here, this is His prayer for the Ephesians. And what He prays for the Ephesians is what you and I need the reality of in our lives, verse 16, that He, that is God the Father, would grant you according to the riches of His glory. That is an immense statement, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power. God has far more power to give to you and me to live the Christian life in a way that will honor and glorify Him than you and I could even ever begin to use or burn up. That we need to be strengthened by the Father. Notice what he says in verse 16, through His Spirit. So the power to live the Christian life comes from the Father. It is through His Spirit in the inner man. That's where the Holy Spirit indwells us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, what, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God, and you're not your own, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body? It is the Spirit who indwells us, and it is the Spirit at work in the deepest part of our inner man that is giving us strength from the inside out. It's not a strength that just lays on the surface of the exterior of our lives. It's not a thin veneer of of a facade, of a superficial strength. It it, It is released within us at the deepest point of our personality and of our being in our inner man, 
Now in verse 17, he completes the Trinitarian focus. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now you may say, wait a minute. I thought Christ already lived in my heart and in my life. Well, He does if you've been born again. But when he says in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your heart, it's, it's actually a different word in the original language. And the idea is this, so that Christ will settle down in your life and make His home in an increasingly personal, penetrating way so that the reality of Christ who lives within you will become more and more real. So do you see, verse 16, that the Father would grant you strength through His Spirit so that Christ, the resurrection life of Christ, may be all the more dynamic in our hearts through faith. As we trust in the Lord with all of our heart, as we rely upon Him, as we confess and acknowledge our weakness, as we abide in Christ and His Word abides in us, Christ makes His home in a very settled-down, personal way to live out the fullness of His life in and through us as we live by faith in Him. This power of the Spirit from the Father to enable Christ to live more fully in us is this Trinitarian focus that Paul makes to the Ephesians. We need this today as well in our lives. And because He brings the entire Trinity to bear on this, it is so that we would have a sense of assurance that there is no challenge that we will ever face. There is no temptation that will ever confront us. Uh, there is no adversity or difficulty with which we will ever encounter but that the overwhelming power that is made real in our lives by all three members of the Godhead is more than sufficient to enable us to live in a way that brings honor and glory to God. You can never say within the will of God, I just could not ever do that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But as all three persons of the Godhead are at work in our lives, we are supernaturally empowered and dynamically enabled to live the Christian life in such a way that we live in obedience to the Lord and we glorify and honor Him. Now, I must hasten. Look at chapter 4 very quickly. Not only spiritual access and spiritual truth and spiritual power, but now in chapter 4, spiritual unity. And he says in chapter 4, verse 1, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he now specifies first how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling and he tells us in verse 3 to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That is so worthy of, of the calling that has come upon us that we are peacemakers and we do all that is within us to live in peace with other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't confront one another with sin. It does not mean there is not ever a time for church discipline. It does not mean that there is not a time for the preacher to call out sin. Uh, it does not mean that, that there will not be turbulence at times, rightly so even, over sin that's in the camp. 
But it does mean that we are to do all that we can to preserve the unity of the Spirit that verse 3 speaks of. Please note, we don't create the unity. We are simply called upon to preserve the unity. And now in verses 4 through 6, here is another Trinitarian focus. Verse 4 is the Holy Spirit verse. Verse 5 is the Lord Jesus verse. And verse 6 is God the Father verse. And this is tightly worded, and it and it may have well been an early confessional statement in the early church, like a doctrinal statement, tightly worded, almost uh, poetically with an economy of words. But here we see the unity that the Spirit of God has created in the church. It is a unity that comes from the from the Trinity itself, it is a unity that is found within the Godhead. So he says in verse 4, there is one body, referring to the body of Christ. Please note, there's not a Baptist body and then a Presbyterian body, then an independent Bible uh, body and a charismatic body and a whatever body over here. There is only one body. There is only one body of Christ, and when we go to heaven, we're not going to be in separate rooms. And down here on the earth, there is one body of Christ, and the Spirit has created one body. Man breaks it up. God has brought it together, and one Spirit. It is this one Spirit who has created this one body, and he says, we are called in one hope of our calling, and this calling refers to the future assurance of our glorification in heaven. You have one hope, I have one hope, everyone in the body has one hope of glory in heaven. And should this occur before the time of our death? it will be the blessed hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the trumpet of God and with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. This is the one hope that we have as believers. And the judge is standing right at the door. And His return is so imminent that at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, He he just simply says, I'm coming quickly. That's the Holy Spirit verse in verse 4. There's only one body, and everyone who is in this one body has been placed there by one Holy Spirit, and there is only one hope for the future for every true, genuine believer. Then verse 5 is the Lord Jesus verse, and Lord here refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one Lord. There's only one Savior. Uh, there is only one mediator. First Timothy 1, or First Timothy 2, 4 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. There is only one Lord, Jesus Christ. And everyone who enters into the kingdom of God has come in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He then says, one faith, one baptism. These have long been troublesome for expositors, interpreters, exegetes. Faith can be used either objectively or subjectively. The objective faith is the body of truth, the doctrinal truth that is contained in the Word of God. Subjective faith is our active faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then one baptism, that also is troublesome. It could refer to water baptism. It could refer to spirit baptism. And time does not permit us to to, to search this out, but there is only one faith in one Lord, and it is to be followed by one baptism by water. The baptism does not come before 
faith in the Lord. It comes after faith in the Lord. Or this could mean that there is only one body of truth, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, and there is one baptism, meaning one spirit baptism by which we are placed into the one body. We'll save for another time delving into which it is. And then in verse 6, it is the God the Father verse. One God and Father of all. The all here refers not to all the world, but to all believers. God is not the Father of unbelievers. The devil is the father of unbelievers. God is only the father of those who have been born again into His family. And He says, one God and Father of all who is over all, that speaks of His supreme authority over the life of all believers, and through all and in all is a comprehensive statement of the omnipotence and omnipresence of God the Father in our lives. Sufficient for our discussion today at this moment is for you to simply see the unity that the Spirit of God has created in the one body of Christ. And... There is only one Lord by which we enter into this one body of Christ. And there is one statement of faith in the body of Christ. And there is one spirit baptism by which we are placed into the body of Christ. And there is one Father of all true believers who is involved in every aspect of our spiritual lives. Paul is drilling down on the Trinity at this point. Paul is pushing down on the gas pedal of the Trinity at this point. Paul is belaboring the doctrine of the triunity of God here to affirm to the Ephesians the unity that God has created in the church, and it is incumbent upon us now to preserve the unity that God Himself has created. I I want to emphasize this again, and it is a mark of spiritual maturity to be a peacemaker with other brothers and sisters, as much as in you lies, and to be looking for points of common agreement with other believers as we fellowship, and it is a mark of spiritual immaturity to want to lock in on points where we disagree theologically and doctrinally, we are to do all that is within us to preserve the unity of the body of Christ and not be theological troublemakers looking to disrupt the peace within the body of Christ. Now, I want you to also note the spiritual purity that the Trinity works in our Christian lives in chapter 4 and in verse 30, chapter 4 and verse 30 we see another Trinitarian emphasis that Paul makes. We see the Spirit in verse 30. We see God the Father in verse 32. We see the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 32. Here again is a a neatly packaged Trinitarian uh, emphasis that Paul makes with the Ephesians. Paul cannot even articulate or communicate how to live the Christian life to the Ephesians with thinking, without thinking in these Trinitarian uh, categories. So he says in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God who is in you. Understand this, all sin in my life and in your life pains the Holy Spirit of God. Just like when parents 
see their children fighting in their bedroom or fighting in the back seat, how it breaks a mother's heart, how it breaks a father's heart uh, to see two sons in a fist fight in the backyard and, and they can't get along. Oh, how it grieves a parent. How much more so does it grieve a holy Father in heaven when He sees that there is bitterness in our lives, as verse 31 says, and there is wrath that is provoked within us, one against another, which leads to anger, which leads to clamor, which then results in the spewing out of words and slander, which then leads to to malice. That's a domino effect, a chain reaction that wrath leads to anger, anger leads to clamor, clamor leads to slander, and slander leads to all malice. How it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And then he says in verse 32, we, we, we must be kind to one another, tender-hearted, be like sweethearts in the body of Christ, forgiving each other, just as God, a reference to God the Father, in Christ also has forgiven you. And then in verse 1, he says, be imitators of God. That's a pretty high standard. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you. This is the purity and the holiness, the godliness that is called for. And Paul conveys this through the template of the Trinity. I want to wrap this up very quickly. I want you to come to chapter 5 and verse 18. I just want you to see the flyover of this entire book. I have two more to give you. I want chapter 5, verse 18. I want you to note spiritual worship. Worship is Trinitarian. Worship is not one-dimensional. Worship is also Trinitarian. Listen, everything in the Christian life is Trinitarian. Worship is Trinitarian. Prayer is Trinitarian. Uh, ministry is Trinitarian. Uh, holiness is Trinitarian. Evangelism is Trinitarian. Everything in the Christian life is, is Trinitarian. But in chapter 5 and verse 18, we see the Holy Spirit in chapter 18. We see the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 19. And we see Christ and the Father in verse 20 as it relates to worship. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And he's making a comparison here between being under the influence of wine and between being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in both cases, a person is acting under an influence that is on the inside of them that causes them to say things they wouldn't normally say and to do things they wouldn't normally do because they are under an influence. Uh, I've been in some places where I see some little pipsqueak of a guy want to take on a whole section in a football stadium. And, you know, we could just squash him with our little thumb. But he doesn't know that because he has a false courage because he's a fool who is under the influence of wine in just the same way. You and I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and have a true boldness to say those things we would not normally say and to do those things we would not normally do and to take a stand for those things we would not normally take a stand for because we are being dominated by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say now in verse 19 that a Spirit-filled church will be a worshiping church. And notice he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. When we, in a corporate gathering like this, as we were doing earlier, as we sing, there is a horizontal dimension and there is a vertical dimension. 
The horizontal dimension is we're speaking to one another. We are encouraging one another as we sing to the Lord. We are fortifying one another as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're speaking to one another while we are singing to the Lord. Your singing to the Lord has an effect on me. And my singing to the Lord has an effect on all the others who are around me as we are stimulating one another and encouraging one another. And so he says that this worship is to be done by the influence of the Holy Spirit. And it is to be sung to the Lord, and then in verse 20, and to the Father. Listen, the flesh can sing to the Lord, and the flesh can sing to the Father. And I've been in those churches and in those conferences where it is nothing but entertainment tonight. It it is a rock concert that masquerades for a worship service, but the only people in reality who are singing are the people up on the stage. And no one else is even able to sing. But when we are filled with the Spirit, those who are on the platform are prompting us to sing to the Lord. And as we are singing to the Lord, we're also speaking to one another. I tell you, one of the great things about being at Shepherd's Conference in in Los Angeles is to be in a room with 4,000 men who are singing to the Lord. If, If that doesn't lift your spirit, then something's wrong. So, all worship is Trinitarian. It is to the Father and it is to the Lord Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's one last focus that I want you to note, and it's in chapter 6 and verse 10, and I want you to see spiritual warfare. It too is Trinitarian. And we could just as easily label this spiritual victory in the midst of spiritual warfare. And as Paul lays out his case for fighting the good fight in spiritual warfare, he does so again with a Trinitarian template that he lays over the reality of spiritual warfare. And so he says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord. The Lord refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. You be strong in Him, not strong in yourself. You be strong in the Lord, meaning you are resting in and relying upon the Lord to give you strength and in the strength of His might. So we see the reality of Christ. We must be strong in the Lord. He is our champion. He is our victor. He he is the one who has won the great victory for us over over Satan and over sin. He has crushed the head of the serpent. Greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. And we are to be strong in the Lord. And then he says in verse 11, put on the full armor of God. And the armor of God is a reference to God the Father. We are to be strong in the Lord Jesus And we are to put on the full armor of God the Father so that we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against against rulers and powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He repeats it in verse 13, take up the full armor of God. And now each piece of the armor is a piece that has come from God. This armor has come from God. Put on each piece that has come from God. And so, he says in verse 14, gird your loins with truth. All truth comes from God. He says, put on the breastplate of of righteousness. That righteousness 
Martin Luther called a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness that, that is outside of us. It has come down from God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's righteousness from God. Then in verse 15, He says, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Romans 1 verse 1 says, it's the gospel of God. It doesn't mean the gospel about God, though it is, just not from that verse. It is the gospel that has come down from God. In verse 16, he says, take up the shield of faith. Listen, all faith comes from God. And then in verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation. All salvation comes from God. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is the Word of God that comes down from God. And when he mentions the Spirit here, the the sword of the Spirit, it means the sword which the Spirit puts into our hands to wield and to use. And so we are to stand in the Lord Jesus. We are to stand strong in the Lord. We are to put on each piece of the armor that the Father gives to us, and we are to take the sword of the Spirit, which the Spirit of God places in our hands. Remember in Matthew 10, it says, when you stand before kings, it will be given to you by the Spirit what to say. We are to wield the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit in spiritual warfare. And in verse 18, he even says, we are to pray at all times in the Spirit. Paul cannot even communicate to the to the Ephesians without doing so in Trinitarian categories of thought. From the beginning in chapter 1, now all the way to the end in chapter 6, every aspect of the Christian life from eternity past to eternity future and every step of the Christian journey in between, it is all being presented to them and to us in a Trinitarian manner. As we mature and grow in the Lord, I believe that the case can be made that we become increasingly Trinitarian conscious, and we become increasingly knowledgeable of the ministries and the persons of each member of the Godhead as we live our Christian lives. So, as we bring this conference to summation and conclusion, what a worthy emphasis we have made upon the Trinity. There is one God who exists in three persons. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. They are of the same nature. They are of the same substance. And yet the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father nor the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son nor the Father. They are three distinct persons. All three play a vital, strategic, necessary, perfect role in salvation. And all three are moment by moment, continually active in our Christian lives, and we must be increasingly aware of how they all three play a vital and important role in our Christian lives. As we grow in our spiritual walk with the Lord, and as we work our way to higher ground, we see from a larger, more expansive perspective. And as we see from higher up through our increased knowledge and doctrinal understanding of the Scripture, we become increasingly 
aware of the three persons of the Trinity and the sufficiency of the Father, the sufficiency of the Son, and the sufficiency of the Spirit. It is a threefold, trifold sufficiency in our lives. What a glorious reality it is to live the Christian life and to have all three persons dynamically, actively, continually involved in our lives to enable us to live in a manner that is worthy of the calling that has come upon our lives. May God use this conference and may God use these messages to bring us to a sharper and a a more keen understanding of who the Trinity is and how vital they are in our spiritual lives. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus, who has opened up the one true living way to come before your throne of grace. And we come to you, Father, boldly with great confidence because of what Christ has done for us. And we are weak in our own flesh, but it is by the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit that we are propelled to approach Your throne of grace through the mediation of Jesus Christ. Lord, may You cause us to be all the more Trinitarian conscious as well as Trinitarian dependent as we live our Christian lives. Father, bless each and every man who is here today with the fullness of all three persons of the Godhead. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.